Welcome everyone. Now we are live for the moment where we could have Judge Paul Nally as our guest. And it is my utmost honor and uh, privilege and a wonderful opportunity that at the end of this year, I could have a guest who's, whose focus right now is on the right timing for the incoming year. So, but first, Happy holidays to everyone. And I do hope that all of you made the most of your moments with your family and friends. As I always wanna say to friends and loved ones, don't let the joy take the, take. don't let others take the joy out of your life, okay? And I'm, I'm also very excited because with me is uh, attorney David Meiswingle from nationalarm.org. And so he, he, it's wonderful to have two organizations connected. And uh, that's I think that's my best strength in these times is collect, uh, connecting people. And it, it seems like that's what I was born for. And I'm happy to, to, to do my mission in this lifetime. And also, I'm also happy if any of you could remember to like, subscribe and definitely share okay and um the the link will be um published in at any moment i will put it also in the ticker but if you are looking for this in quant in rumble it will be quantum nurse rumble live and then it will show up okay so just quantum nurse rumble live and you know feel free to join us so thank you so much again. Um, welcome again, Judge Paul Nelly. And here's what I know about Judge Paul Nelly. And for sure, I would be so, you, you and I will be so excited whatever information more he could provide to us as a background of what he's been doing. So he's a former master sergeant in Georgia and Air National Guard, police chief, city of White, Georgia, Bartow County Deputy Justice of the Peace at uh, 823 Militia District and Bartow County, Georgia. And Justice of the Peace was merged with magistrate courts in 1983 Constitution. So he has retired from Lockheed and the uh, Georgia Department of Transportation. And he's been involved with grand jury access for the last 23 years and not counting so many things that he has done before. So welcome and remember guys, please share, share, share now or later on, okay? And let me unmute uh, Judge Bolnelli. Thank you, Judge. Please add more to the, of, for your introduction for my audience. Well, uh, there's not a lot more to add to that. Uh... Uh, oh, I am enjoying retirement. <laughs> and, that's, and, and that's about all I can say. You mentioned a minute ago about bringing a little joy right here at the end of the year. And it made me think of something. And I'll share it with your listening audience right now. Access to a grand jury does not belong just two citizens, anybody 
who has a grievance can access a grand jury if that is the appropriate forum in which to seek their remedy. And with that, I'll yield. Hmm. And uh, Judge Nally, you, uh, either it's in your or, or the past videos, interviews that you've had and in, on, a, on the grand jury um, organization that you're connected with, the Beyond the Con, and I always see the word, it is our court. And yes, for, me, for me, that, that statement is so powerful. It is our court. What you have to understand, well, golly, Pete, I don't mean to take up a lot of time with. Oh, no, please do. With boring rhetoric, but. Let me start back with our let me start back with our Constitution. Um, from what was it, 1787, the, the Constitution was adopted by Congress and. A lot of lawyers and judges, especially, insist upon you calling that document a constitution it, as if there are a myriad of separate laws that govern its actions in our society. But what has to be remembered is that document is and if and if, if they want to make notes they better grab a pencil and a sharp sharp pencil and a piece of paper but for all of the laudable verbiage that is attached to that document it's imperative to remember that it is a revocable charitable express public trust government charter Now, that takes in a whole lot of law. Uh, don't go read court decisions about the Constitution and think you're going to understand it. You won't. You're going to have to understand contracts. You're going to have to understand bailments. You're going to have to understand UCC laws. You're going to have to understand contracts, especially. Because even though this is a charter, it was brought into existence by the contractual relationship by approximately 3 million citizens in the 13 colonies. And they did that. I know you're thinking how in the Sam Hill does 3 million people get together and discuss something and, and come to this kind of a document. Well, what they did is they discussed it locally and then they told their elected representatives, this is what we want you to do. And then, of course, it went on up from the elected representatives in the state to the representatives in the Congress. So, you know, be, be sure you understand that this document exists because of contract law. And... Uh, also, you need to understand that it is a revocable charter, a, a revocable express public trust. So if any time 
we believe that the document itself is not performing adequately, then we have a right to amend it or change it or do away with it. We can do we can do away with it completely and go to another document altogether. But that is where the genius of our founding fathers came into existence. And I cannot tell you, I wasn't there, so I can't tell you why the grand jury was not originally put into the formal framework of the Constitution. What I can tell you is that by putting it into the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, that was a stroke of genius because what it did, it placed the grand jury in the position of being our court of inquiry. And the way they did it is also noteworthy. Because what they did is they reached over into the common law. They picked up the grand jury, fully clothed with all of its powers, duties, and responsibilities. And they set it down in the Fifth Amendment, totally unchanged. That's one of the reasons why you will not find Congress generating a lot of law on grand juries. The same thing applies here in the state of Georgia. Now, I can't speak to a lot of other state constitutions, but that exact same thing happened in Georgia's constitution. It, the grand jury has been set down, fully clothed, in Article 1, Section 1, Paragraph 11 of the Georgia Constitution, and, and our Constitution goes even further in explaining one of the primary aspects of a grand jury and that is they are acknowledged they're not given this power it is a power that is acknowledged belonging only to them to be judges of the law the supreme court of georgia is not a judge of the law the supreme court of the united states is not a judge of the law Yes, they can look at a law. They can hold it up to the Constitution and say, well, this doesn't match the Constitution, so this piece of legislation is unconstitutional. But when it comes to picking up a law on theft or aggravated assault or uh, armed robbery, your grand jury can, the first thing your grand jury in Georgia and in the federal judiciary is supposed to do is to pick up that law, read it and say to themselves, yep, that's good law. And we're going on with the rest of this case. Or they can say, well, I don't know. That thing might need some, that thing might need some work. And they'll send a presentment to the Congress or to the legislature of the state of Georgia. And then again, they might pick it up and look at it and say, dang, that is totally bad law. Now their presentment is going to say, we nullify this statute. And they send that presentment down to the state legislature. Legislatures, nothing they can do about it except rewrite the law. They can't leave it the way it is. 
And that's the power that your grand jury has. All of the power that any citizen ever had or will ever know that can be exercised within this republic is in the hands of your grand jury. That's the kind of power God has left in the hands of the people in this nation. And this applies, I don't, now there are some states where grand juries are handled differently. Grand jury, not all grand juries appear in constitutions, but they appear somewhere in the law, in the statutes of the state. But there's, since uh, 1860, I believe it was 1868 when the 14th Amendment was passed, that changed how grand juries are supposed to function in our republic. Now, did it? No. There are still states that allow you to get up a petition with your neighbors and petition the judge to impanel a grand jury. Some states' grand juries are impaneled each term of court, like Georgia. But what's important to understand is, is how the federal grand jury works is the, uh, well, one other thing you're going to learn about me, I do have senior moments. Uh, it's the yardstick by which a local grand jury should be judged as far as it's being constituted and how it works. And that is because under the 14th Amendment, Section 1, Clause 2, no state can make any law. They cannot make or enforce any law which abridges the privileges and immunities of a citizen of the United States. And it just so happens the federal grand jury is where you should look for proper grand jury uh, practices and procedures, except for one thing, and that is the propensity of U.S. attorneys and federal judges to deny you your right of access to a federal grand jury. And that same denial so far is being applied by the states. That's got to stop. And the way it's going to stop is for somebody, maybe somebody in your listening audience, to get on a grand jury, to get impaneled on, into a grand jury, and raise these issues help his colleagues, his fellow quasi-judicial officers, and by the way, they are all judicial officers, all grand jurors are sitting members of a, board, of a court of inquiry. So there are judges. And help them understand what's going on in their local communities and in the federal government. And what they need to do is simply issue indictments. When they find just like, uh, and I know you're familiar with this, your listening audience may not be, but the two Oregon state senators and the, and the physician 
that tried to get to the Portland, Oregon grand jury, they initially, their petition to lay evidence before the grand jury, and that's all they want to do. Let us show our evidence. You do with it whatever you want to do, but let us show you the evidence. Well, they were denied. They were denied by all 94 United States attorneys around the country. Now, in Georgia, that's an act of felony theft. Obstructing any citizen is actionable under state law as a felony theft. But under federal law, it's also a violation of the 14th Amendment, Section 1, Clause 2, which, by the way, is prosecutable under federal law under 18 U.S.C. 242. It's a federal felony. So what we need is for grand jurors around the country to come to understand that our ability to manage our government on a day-to-day -day basis has been stripped away from us. And it's been done by political intervention. It has been done by criminal intervention. It has been tor tortuously done. Yeah, you can sue them and tort if you want to. I wouldn't recommend that. Because <laughs> that means you got to start out with a pocket full of money for lawyers. <laughs> and you don't really need to do that. You, 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 need, to, uh, you, you need to look at the O.J. Simpson case and take a lesson from that. Yes, they lost the criminal prosecution of O.J. Simpson. But they turned around and then they sued in tort and won, what was it, $10 million? So you need to understand practice and procedure within the judiciary, within the practice of law. And... I've, I've rambled on about enough, I think. Maybe I better I better uh, hush up here and let somebody ask a question. <laughs> no, thank you so much, uh, Judge Nally. So listening to you and from the other, um, we've had in our podcast, we've really been discussing about common law for the past many years. And in fact, um, I, we've had guests from all over the world. So I guess it is right now, it is of my opinion that um, this grand jury became more powerful being like, it's like a foundation from the, from the common law. But I wanted to know where did a common law originated from? And that means also that we haven't really tapped the most of what was given to us by our founding fathers in terms of just, you know, just educating ourselves. So can you please kind of give us a little bit of background of the common law? And uh, be because you, you, Judge Nelly, everyone seems to think that, okay, the incoming year, you know how you think about New Year's resolution, what you can do? So this is the time that maybe we could you could educate us more and explain more and whatever you want to to invite the audience. And after this, um, I'll 
I'll yield, yield to attorney um, David Meiswinkle, who's co-hosting me because by the way, I look at him, he has so much in his mind already. He's ready to, to speak more to you, but go ahead, please. Well, I was just fixing to say, I can smell his gears turning from here, <clears throat> but, uh, but it's odd. It, well, it's not odd. Uh, it's perceptive that you would mention the common law because there is a case, a federal case on uh, grand jury subpoenas. Uh, and I've forgotten the judge's name, the case, uh, Henry, no, United States versus Calandra. And the judge writing in that case made the observation that the grand jury, there's one thing the grand jury cannot do. Now, if you start studying the grand jury and where they can stick their nose and for what reasons they can stick them there. You know, pretty soon you're you're beginning to think, good gosh almighty, there ain't nobody greater than a grand jury than but God Almighty. Well, that's pretty close to the truth. But he did make the observation that there's one thing a, a grand jury cannot do, and that is they may not violate any valid privilege, whether established in the Constitution, the statutes, or the common law. People need to understand, yes, the common law is still to be studied to this day. It still exists in our legal system. Now, what is the common law? Basically, it's, it's, uh, it's a compilation of the acceptable norms for interpersonal relationships that existed centuries and centuries ago in tribal communities. Over time, tribes would come up with their rules, their little regulations, uh, just like the, just like they used to do in, in the Hebrew society. Uh, I don't subscribe to this, but in, in ancient Hebrew times, there was a way to test for somebody who was telling the truth or somebody who might be lying. And that was to heat up a spear tip until it was red hot and then touch it to the tongue of both of the individuals. And you'd be surprised there. There's a little scientific evidence that backs that a truth teller won't be their tongue won't stick to that red hot spear, a liar's will. <clears throat> Not in every case. Not in every case. But the common law came down as all of these little rules and regulations were refined until you get to uh, the Anglo-Saxons and the Norse uh, Normandy invasion of England when all of this stuff began to get codified. Uh, as a matter of fact, the grand jury, some, some scholars argue that the grand jury started um, 11, 20 something, but it was definitely firmly ensconced in the Magna Carta in 1215 uh, when King John 
not only did he establish a grand jury well 25 nights but he waived sovereign immunity when it comes to uh, when it comes to uh, your rights your liberties and your property if, if those were taken from you wrongfully then the 25 knights had the authority of the king in writing to use all their might well my goodness the might of the earls of that day the knights of that day i mean you're talking about a bunch of men and every one of them armed now the king didn't want to see a bunch of armed folks come marching on his castle so he was inclined to listen and so was his judiciary if the king happened not to be in the country but that's where the common law came from and then it was pretty well set in stone uh, by the Magna Carta and then of course you had Parliament coming in and uh, passing laws uh, for the King's assent and it just developed into a statutory a, a what would some lawyers will refer to it as being a a positive statutory law and all that is is our legislators our Congress went back into the common law took this law out looked at it and they said yeah this will do and we'll put this in a statute or they might look at it and say no this won't do because we've advanced so far we need to change this so they'll change the common law and put it in a statute all of our statutes for near every one of them are based upon something in the common law. And with that, I, I better take a rest and, 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 and let wiser minds than mine have the floor. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Grace. Uh, some questions I have judge and, uh, maybe I should just tell you a little bit of background that, that I've had previously that have come to make me come to the conclusion that I've come to is that I was involved with the lawyers committee for 9-11 inquiry. I was the president and executive director for three years. And uh, when we started out, we had uh, William Pepper as a famous uh, lawyer. He came and addressed us and he said, uh, you're not going to get anywhere in the federal courts with, uh, with the crimes of 9-11 uh, because they're too corrupt. So, uh, we nevertheless uh, did a, a very uh, excellent grand jury petition that was presented, uh, taken up to uh, Foley Square, which is in downtown New York, Manhattan, in the Southern District. And it was presented uh, there at the, in the, uh, the uh, attorney, U.S. Attorney Berman received it. And uh, it, what it did, it claimed that there was evidence that we had. We had taken the... Uh, evidence that had been gathered for many years by architects and engineers. These were all professionals, high-quality high professionals, probably the top organization in the, in the world on this. And they had asked us if we could help them uh, package it legally and get it into the grand jury. So we did that. And uh, what that evidence showed was that the buildings, 9-11, down in the towers, came down through controlled demolition, through explosives through uh, 
military, high-grade military explosives put in buildings that it contained the evidence of nanothermite uh, and uh, etc. And we had seismic readings that showed that there was explosions in the basement before the airplanes even hit the buildings. We had uh, testimonies from very important people, experts, etc., and documents. And uh, we took that to the grand jury. We had some complainants there that had lost their uh, son or lost their uh, husband who was a firefighter or lost their brother who was a firefighter or one f fire chief from New York City that had damage to his lungs uh, permanent. And yet the, uh, the uh, Berman, the U.S. attorney, who had an obligation to take that evidence and present it to the grand jury, would not do it. So we had asked for, we have to go in on Damus to try and compel him to do his job. And that's to present this evidence. He would not do it. Uh, we had to sue on it. It went up to the appellate division eventually. We got denied. And when we tried to go to the Supreme Court, we were denied. We couldn't go. So it took us five years to do that circuit. And it went, unfortunately, nowhere. Where It was really solid evidence that the American public should see. To, to just just like a grand jury, as we were talking to regular people, look at this and 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 uh, you know play with it, uh, think about it, and take it somewhere. If you want to subpoena some people, start doing that, and uh, start an investigation because it had never really been one of that terrible crime, a criminal investigation. You know, in other words, it was solved before almost right when it happened, so there was no proper investigation. And then we did it with the anthrax attacks. If you know, shortly thereafter, through the federal courts. Uh, Bruce Ivins, eventually seven or eight years later, was accused of being the mastermind, sent these letters of uh, high-grade military uh, anthrax, really. It was a, a trillion spores of anthrax in one gram. It was the most sophisticated anthrax. And from our investigation, it came back to United States laboratories. All right? At first, they tried to say Iraq. And we could see that the FBI had obstructed the investigation. We had the head of the investigation itself, the FBI, guy, FBI person, Richard Lambert, appear at our board meeting and for two and a half hours talk to us and tell us there was a lot of problems with the investigation. He left basically as a whistleblower because he himself was being obstructed. He told us there was 16 pages he had that basically exonerated the person that they were accusing of, of committing the murder. Anyway, a grand jury petition was done on that. And with a lot of other evidence and affidavits from different colonels that worked at Fort Diedrich, we had gathered from their best friend who was a doctor there, uh, and we talked to his son, and there was a, a, a thoughts of foul play. Being he supposedly committed suicide right before uh, they were going to indict him. If they were going to indict him, they, that's what they claim. Uh, so uh, it, I take this in retrospect back to uh, 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 Professor uh that Pepper, who came to talk to us before we started investigations, who said, you're not going to get anywhere in a federal court. Well, from those two incidences having to do with 9-11, that was a lesson well learned, I think. Now, it doesn't mean I don't like to make generalities like that. But on that important crime, right, uh, we had important evidence that showed very significant findings which would alter history and would take a direction of an entirely different direction an investigation were not allowed to be presented to the public. So we started eventually, I left the Lawyers Committee, we started a group called the National American Renaissance Movement, the National Arm. And the purpose of that was really to, to be set up as a uh, opposition 
to the new world order, to the great reset, and without going into that, what they will try to do. And, to, and one of the basic things is to undermine our constitution, our bill of rights and our freedoms. So the first issue we took up was the vaccines and, and what's behind the vaccines. And the question we had, should we go into federal court or should try to get a federal uh, grand jurisdiction going or should we go into the state courts? And we decided to go into the state courts. So thus far, we've custom-made grand jury petitions for the states of New Jersey, Florida, Idaho, Texas, Tennessee, California, Ohio, South Carolina, New Mexico, and Pennsylvania. And you know that in Florida, there is an investigation, uh, Surgeon General Latipal. Now, he had already begun that investigation, but he received ours. I don't know if he, if he read it, but it was sent to him. And uh, in Texas, it's very difficult to get to their... Their, uh, their DAs, their district attorneys, their prosecutors, but you had to buy a list that cost $125 to get their emails. We did that. It was like over 240, I think. We sent a grand jury petition to them and to the Attorney General Paxson, who was under a lot of stress at the time, and to Governor Abbott of Texas. And uh, it's certified mail to Abbott, received the card back. So they received it. And we were pleasant to see, I don't know if we had anything to do with anything, but they do have an action on the vaccines in Texas, right? There is an action there. And they might have just looked at us as a, a friend of the court that may be sending it. But we send it to literally uh, probably at least 200, around 250 prosecutors and or the governor and or the attorney general in Texas. So I'm uh, sorry for that background. But here is the question I have uh, to try and be effective because we have this incredible crime of uh, this uh, COVID pandemic, uh, the fraud, total fraud. And, and it, we look at it a little differently in what we did at our presentation. Uh, we list uh, the people of interest, starting with Fauci and Collins and Gates and people like that, et cetera. We have about 65 listed there. We have 15 crimes. And in the custom-made uh, petitions, when we, we send them in, they, there is a, a state statute say for murder uh, or for bioweapons. Some states even have bioweapons. Some states even have treason, right? But of course we have the federal crimes in there and we have the backup crimes. Some states like Ohio have genocide, right? Which is pretty interesting. So what we wanna do, if we can get the manpower to, to assist, is to give every state in the union a custom-made grand jury to just to wake them up, just to say, hey, there has to be some brave, principled uh, law enforcement officer here uh, who wants to do the right thing and has the courage to do it. So, again, this is a background to ask the question. With your experience, is it better to go to the federal court or a state court or both as a strategy to both? And if you choose to state court, which courts besides Florida and Texas would be more receptive to this type of action? For example, in Georgia, I mean, they had enacted a grand jury, but it was to uh, go after Trump for, for, you know, for, for uh, tampering with election and things like that. So what states, if you're going to do a strategy and you don't want to spread yourself too thin, 
what states you're going to concentrate on the breakthrough because they're the most principled states. They're the ones that have most connection to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and realize the dangers we're in right now. Wow. Let me ask a question before you do, before we go any further. Uh, when you uh, when you challenged your denial to the grand jury, did you by any chance raise the uh, the doctrine of the separation of powers? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I have to I have to look at the the. the uh, uh, okay, the, that's that's I, all right. Our litigation director drafted that. I don't remember exactly. Good question. I don't. But why do you say that? Go ahead. Well, it, it just occurred to me that uh, anytime a judge denies you access, that judge is committing a crime from the bench. I mean, he really is. There's no getting around it. You, I, I, I never ceased to, well, years ago, I never ceased to be amazed when I would run into uh, various lawyers fresh out of law school. I always looked at them and said, can a judge commit a, a, a felony from the bench? <laughs> and, they, and they looked at me like deer in headlights. What the hell are you talking about, boy? Well, I, I think part of the problem is maybe it's a buddy system. Yeah. I, I don't think that, and, and it's so corrupt. That's yeah. the question. And, and I guess the, the question I'm really posing is which state has the integrity still to do an investigation, to really take this up. And, and what we're trying to do is educate law enforcement. We should have to do that. And, and maybe we're, you know, being, we're trying to say, hey, these are your laws too. These are federal laws of crimes that involve this, this, this vaccine. Well, and here are state laws that involve it. Do something about it. Yes, absolutely. And you're probably going to, start scratching your head when I mention this, but I have already started drafting petitions to four Northern California grand juries. Now, I don't know if any of them will get in the hands of the grand jury first, but that is, that is key. And the reason I'm going to local grand juries, there's there's a, a neat little verbiage. Bear with me just a second. 18 U.S.C. 30. I'm going to hate myself if I misquote this. 3041. Subparagraph A. Which literally gives every magistrate in every state federal jurisdiction to inquire into federal crimes. The language is there. The United States Congress has given every magistrate in every state, every magistrate who is clothed with the power of a magistrate, and that includes grand juries. Grand juries, I don't care where you go in the United States, they are courts of inquiry. There's a, I've got 1911 case law on that uh, right here in Georgia. So 
once you understand that you've got to get to the foreman or a member of the grand jury. Now, here in Georgia, what the clerks of the courts do is if you walk in and say, I've got a petition I need to get to the hands of the grand jury. Could I get the foreman's uh, mailing address, please? No, I can't give you that. That's that is uh, that's secret information. Well, that's not what Title 50 says. Title 50 says it is not required to be made public. That's a hell of a long way from being secret. But that's the way they've been indoctrinated by the powers that be. And, you know, it, and, and you and I understand this. It's just a matter of time within two or three generations from you and me. We're going to have a room full of serfs, peons. I don't care what your bank account is. You're going to be a servant of some government agent, be it count local, uh, city, county, state, or federal. And you're going to do what you're told to do. That's the bottom line. That's where we're headed. Unless, unless something is done about our national education system. Now, this I can say without any reservation, and that is that our educational system in this state and in this nation have performed an absolutely marvelous job in educating this people to the maximum level of their acceptable ignorance. <laughs> I mean, there's no, there's, I get no argument on that because they don't have a clue that a grand jury exists. They don't have a clue what a grand jury's function is. They don't know that the grand jury has an oath of office. And sad to say, the integrity that used to be ingrained in our grandfathers and great-grandfathers doesn't exist anymore. It's gone, effectively gone. My understanding, Judge, is that uh, uh, the grand jury as a people's court was, it was quite formidable after the revolution. They went after a lot of the, uh, the so-called the traitors, the British traitors, and after the Civil War. But after World War II, my understanding, and correct me, uh, was that and when people would initiate an action, an investigation, they had a better sense of the power of the grand jury and their role in it in the investigation. But after World War II, there was federal legislation that shifted a lot of the responsibilities that the people would be doing to the uh, prosecutor or the, the attorney general or the U.S. attorney. In other words, they served as a, a buffer or they cut the people off. So the people really don't know the power they have because it's been sort of set up through federal legislation and or now the custom that we go through the, uh, the prosecutor. For the most part now do you is that correct at all or, or is that yeah yes basically you're correct uh in 1948 the uh the uh council of federal court judges i believe is the title of the organization that uh 
generates rules to be considered by the federal courts. But when they were talking about grand juries, they took out a word that was in the Constitution. It's still there. It's still in the Constitution, but it's not in their literature. And that's the word presentment. The only thing a grand jury today is told about is, oh, you're here to provide indictments to pass on the uh, weight, relevancy, and sufficiency of our evidence to believe that a crime was committed and that John Doe uh, committed the crime. And you do that by signing off or agreeing to our indictment, and you'll sign it. Well, yep, that's telling that's telling the grand jury the truth, but they're only telling them half of the truth. It's this damnable ability to deceptively advocate their position. Because if they left the word presentment in there, you can bet your bottom dollar some citizen sitting in that grand jury one day would have said, "What's a presentment?" Uh-oh. Now they got to now they got to explain that. And if they don't explain it properly, then that grand juror can suggest to his colleagues that that government attorney be indicted for for or at least be held in contempt for lying to a grand jury. They need to understand the indictment comes from the government attorney. The presentment comes from the grand jury. But they are not told that. They don't understand it because it's not in the written documents except in the Fifth Amendment. And th that's the key there. And that's I think. the key. Yeah. Yes, that is the key. And that's why, it's, that's why it is absolutely uh, essential that anytime anybody today wants to get a grand jury to look at something doesn't matter what you've got to put it in the hands of the grand jury a grand juror and we've got a beautiful case law site here in georgia from back in 1870 i'm sorry 1886 henry lester where justice hall started off the sentence it is the right of any individual or person of lawful age to come forward and prosecute for offenses against the state. Wow. Wow. And then he goes on to say, but if he doesn't want to, he can provide that in from his information to the grand jury or any member thereof whose duty it becomes to inform his colleagues and either case and in either case they shall inquire. That's their oath. Now, here's a question. Yes, sir. In, in reference, I mentioned the cases that, that the lawyers committee had, had problems with getting the evidence to the grand jurors. We were blocked. Yes. Now, uh, with, with your background with the states, is it easier to bypass the that uh, sort of blocking that obstructive mechanism with the, uh, the attorney general or with the, the individual prosecutor? And you mentioned before you want to take this to the grand jury, uh, the grand jury. How do you get it to them, pristine, without it being uh, 
intercepted and then blocked from your computer screen through a printer into your hands and from your hand into the hands of a grand juror, either the foreman or any grand juror. It doesn't matter. It does not stop at the local district attorney. It does not stop at the United States attorney's hands. Do not ever allow that to happen. And I'll tell you what, if I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll even meet y'all if you've got three attorneys who are willing to go out on a limb and take on a Georgia grand jury, or it don't matter. I'll meet you in Tennessee, South Carolina, where I'll, I'll meet you in Texas, or we can go to Oregon uh, with a proper pleading to a grand jury and lay it in the hand of the grand jury of a grand juror whether it be the foreman or a member. Now, what's going to happen? You're going to tick off a local district attorney. You you think being from Georgia, say we did that. <laughs> say we did that. And and uh, we got three attorneys together come down and you in Georgia. Would there be an access for us to, to get there? I mean, I mean, what door do yeah. we go for? Yeah, but here's what you got to do. Here's what you got to prepare to do. You have to prepare to walk out of the courthouse without having made service, hand-to-hand -hand service, go sit down at a typewriter or go sit down at a computer screen and type up a federal indictment against the district attorney. Okay. Now, you, you mentioned federal. How about state? Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm talking about, the state attorney. If you and I and two other gentlemen were to walk into the Bartow County Courthouse, I, <laughs> I know their system well enough to know how to get to the grand jury and the foreman before the district attorney can actually get involved, but it won't be but a few seconds. He'll be right on our heels. But he's got to know that district attorney has to know that it ain't Paul Nally down there raising hell anymore. Now there are three outstanding attorneys from other states who are also here and they have it in their mind that they're going to criminally prosecute me under federal law. If I interfere with their right of petition, because that's a crime in Georgia. It's a crime under the federal statutes. You've got to have enough manpower. And and it doesn't it doesn't have to be attorneys. It can just it can be law school graduates who understand how to draft appropriate pleadings to either a Georgia court or to a federal court. I would strongly recommend going into federal court to a, a federal magistrate judge and going directly to the federal magistrate judge with a criminal complaint about a United States, I mean, about a uh, local district attorney. Let me tell you what, that actually, that was actually done. It wasn't done by a group, but it was done by a little lady down in Savannah, Georgia. 
with a Bullock County District Attorney. And she went into federal court to the federal magistrate and she filed a criminal complaint or tried to file a criminal complaint. She, the federal magistrate judge dismissed her. He dismissed her. He, he and this, the uh, federal court judge, his recommendation to the federal court judge, district court judge, was dismissed upon his recommendation. And his recommendation was that a citizen lacks a judicially cognizable interest in the prosecution or non-prosecution of another. Now, that is a site from Linda R.S. versus Richard D., and you're probably familiar with it. But what it is, it's a bastardization of Justice Marshall's uh, commentary when he was discussing a citizen's ability to control a district attorney in a state or a prosecuting attorney in the federal judiciary. Now, yeah, you and I both know we can go tell a, a United States attorney or a district attorney, oh, y'all need to prosecute him to the nth degree of the law. Well, we can do that all day long. He ain't got to do it. And there, we have no recourse if he doesn't. Because of prosecutorial discretion. He's got it. We know he's got it. So we just keep our mouth shut and see what happens. But when we, you and me, are standing there at the gates of heaven or hell, whichever that grand jury door is, uh, seeking to present our grievance and our petition for a remedy, then they do not have the authority to say we as citizens lack a judicially cognizable interest in the prosecution or the non-prosecution of another. That's our job as members of this charter, this great charter we call the Constitution. That is our duty. It is our right. It is our discretion. It is our right to know. And not from a judge, but from the grand jurors. And Lord of mercy, boy, you're coming close to getting me on a stump. I better hush. <laughs> well, well, that's good. It's uh, good to have this exchange. Now, in doing a, something in Georgia, uh, is it better to have attorneys from Georgia? Is it better to have, uh, as far as any kind of standing argument, uh, people that are citizens of Georgia that want to have a Georgia grand jury uh, or Georgia investigation? Other would, than, go ahead. I'm sorry. I would be willing to bet that three nationally known attorneys, just three, showing up at the Superior Court of Bartow County on the day the grand jury is meeting would be sufficient to walk up to the bailiff, instruct the bailiff to call the, the foreman out and to do this before nine o'clock, 8.45 in the morning and ask the bailiff to call the foreman out 
and present him with the petition and with the instructions that the district attorney is not qualified to act as their legal counsel. Now, because they have an oath of office, they are not for the purposes of Georgia's violation of official oath statute. They're not public officials, even though they are. But they're not the public officials who day to day for one year, two years, whatever. They're just there for a term of court. But they can still be sued. And, and you need to tell them this. If you refuse to first look over our petition, second, determine your jurisdiction, subject matter jurisdiction of this, of this grand jury, then you uh, do your personal jurisdiction. And if you find no fault with any of that, then diligently inquire and true presentment make. And if you need assistance, we are here to present the evidence in our case. Right. Now, in, in that, that scenario, you're going through the uh, prosecutor. Is there a scenario where we can just go to the, uh, the grand jury itself and the form of the grand jury? That's, Get that's, that. that's it. That's, That's it. it. Get there about eight forty-five in the morning. So, and because the DA is going to be busy in his office getting this stuff together, you you, you got to learn where everybody's at in the courthouse. And so, he'll be busy getting all his paperwork together so he can come over to the grand jury. But if he finds out you're there, now he'll come a hot footing it. It won't matter what else he needed to get done. He'll be hot footing it to you. And that when he shows up, that's the time. All three look him dead in the eye and say, one act of obstruction is all it's going to take. And we're going to file a federal criminal complaint this afternoon. As soon as we can get that, as soon as we can get over to Rome, Georgia, we'll be filing a federal criminal complaint. Okay, well, this is a good scenario. If it was Georgia or actually any state, right? But uh, Georgia, Texas, Texas. Now, Texas has a law. Uh, I can't remember if it's Title Six or Title 20, but they have a law that says every citizen has a right to go to the grand jury with the uh, consent of the district attorney. Well, that with consent of a district attorney is unconstitutional. Stop and think about it. Sure. I don't need I don't need a district attorney's consent. All I need is for the grand jury to look over my petition, determine the subject matter jurisdiction of the grand jury, and if it's good, then diligently inquire and true presentment make. Right. I'm sorry, I don't know about the, but I'm but I'm hearing some good things too about California grand juries. So right. I got my fingers crossed. <laughs> it's very interesting. Well, I, you know, we have reached. The, look, we when when the grand jury is when you are stopped from the grand jury, there is only one. I'm sorry, there are two alternatives. One is you tuck your tail, get back on the porch, 
and and just soak up the sunshine with the rest of the hunting dogs. Now, if you don't want to do that, then the only other alternative left is to walk in the front door, walk over to the fireplace, reach up over the mantel, and take a death grip on the Second Amendment. Now, that's where we are today. Without access to the grand jury, our First Amendment rights don't amount. I started to use a little colloquial Georgia comment there, but I won't. <laughs> but they don't amount to much. Well, you're right. And and, and also, it, it, it reflects back to what you said about the education and the dumbing down of American people. Yes, sir. They don't, yep. don't understand their rights. None are, none are taught their rights. None of them are taught about the, the original purpose of the grand jury they don't they don't understand that it whatsoever even attorneys don't understand right for them well you know it, it's odd that you would mention that because twice now i've i've spoken at some public events and on two separate occasions i've had attorneys young practicing attorneys walk up to me and say mr nally they didn't teach us anything about the grand jury in law school <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it would be, uh, that's what we really need. We need to get into the grand jury. That's what this whole purpose is. And strategies, how to do that, what would be the proper venue or the jurisdiction to, to get that done, and then uh, decide how you're going to do it. <laughs> just think, just th stop and think for a minute. If that grand jury door is ever opened, there's going to be an awful lot of state and federal judges who are going to be booking one-way tickets to Brazil. <laughs> we don't have an extradition treaty with Brazil. So they're not likely to be coming back. That means that a lot more intelligent, caring attorneys will have judgeships to be filled. Right. But anyway... Man, you know, y'all can get me wound up in a heartbeat on this. Well, that's all right. Cause it, I mean, people have to hear this. This is important information you have. So uh, and well, not too many people have that information to teach others. So thank you. You're more than welcome. And, and Grace, I'm sorry. I, 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 I've been running my mouth and I ain't let you have. No. No, it's perfect. It's perfect. Everything that you both were, you know, what you're talking about needed to be said. And actually, I will just interject. However, um, feel free, David, um, pitch in anytime. So because uh, there's this question from the audience, but you have already covered it, Paul, Judge Nally, but feel free to add more. And he said, why do judges and the courts not understand or recognize common law? So I and I wanted to add to this uh, question that is it just, you know, the intention is it is is the intention really like, how do you call it? Like it's it's truly an intention to what, really dumb down. Well, what you need to understand is that our Congress in the last 200 and something years, they have managed to statutorily incorporate the common law everywhere they can. There's still common law there, 
judges know it exists. And some of them even make mention in their decisions that they have referred a situation that's covered under that's covered under statutory law, but it is supported by the common law. And they will sometimes say that. Just 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 to let people know, yeah, we still read the common law once in a while. <laughs> but but most everything in the common law today has been converted to what they call the positive law of this nation or the statutory law. And uh, so you, you go to statutes first, and then if you don't find it, then you go to the common law. Okay. And and um, what really attracted me to, to listen to you more is really when you mentioned all those words of revocable, you know, trust, etc. Because because I've been I'm I'm a part of or I've been attending a group in New Jersey, you know, who's been studying about being sov in the sovereign process, and they've been talking about the UCC. Oh. so um, so and, and now, it's really exciting, let, Judge, to let know. Me, let me say this about this concept of sovereign citizen. Back before the Articles of Confederation, yeah, we were in a transition from subjects of the crown to sovereign citizens, and then we changed over to being uh, subject to the rule of law. And that all happened because all three million people in the 13 colonies, and, and, and three million is a somewhat nefarious uh, reference but there, there there were some old documents that said that there were about three million people in the continental united states in the 13 colonies so we'll work with that but those three million got together and they said we're going to contract with one another well when we contracted with one another when our ancestors contracted with one another they contracted away their sovereignty because if they were sovereign, then they would be patrolling their front yard with an AK-47 in one hand and a Colt 45 in the other. That's the gun, not the beer can. And, uh, but in order to keep from having to spend that much time protecting property, we decided that we would all come together we would yield a certain amount of our sovereign authority to a government that was designed to protect us and be operated for our benefit. And that's what we've got today in our Constitution. But people don't treat it that way. They don't have a clue that it is a charitable trust, a public trust. And it's an express trust for the purpose of forming a government. And it is revocable. There was something else I wanted to say, and dang, nabbit, I forgot it. Well, that's another senior moment. We'll chalk that one up and get on. <laughs> so is is there, to follow up with this conversation with a you know sovereign process, you know, there's so many groups, and then some of them. Are not, I don't think they're 
legitimate or reliable because I've we've had we met people who've been like went to the wrong path as I say so is there any one or two that you would recommend I did here now I got to be real careful here how I phrase this there's a group over here in Hall County <laughs> excuse me <clears throat> over here in Hall County and they started a citizen's grand jury now it's not the one that meets each term of court it's this they just call themselves citizen grand jury and they would request various citizens to come address them on matters of local import and then once they thought they had all the evidence, they would issue a presentment and they would take that presentment and try to get it to a local grand jury. They never did. But a lot of people uh, had a habit of putting them down for even going through the motions and for calling it a citizen's grand jury. Well, here is the law on what you call yourself you can call yourself you and 10 or 15 other folks can call yourself a grand jury there is no prohibition to that you can call yourself a citizen's grand jury there is no prohibition to that now there would be a problem if you tried to issue a subpoena because only only the courts have the subpoena power. But as long as you're not issuing a subpoena power and you're not issuing an indictment, 10 local citizens can get together in any jurisdiction in this country, call themselves a citizen's grand jury and invite people to bring them the evidence of misdeeds going on in their county. Then they all 10 of them on an appointed morning can walk up to the courthouse and hand it to the bailiff, hand it to the clerk, or put it directly in the hands of the grand jury. Now, one thing to note, and that is sometimes some poor misguided deputy is going to get in the way and tell you, no, you can't talk to the grand jury foreman or you can't talk to the grand juror. That deputy, that law enforcement officer who's supposed to know better, is committing a criminal act, both under your state law and under federal law. And they can be criminally prosecuted for it. So understand, you don't have to be a citizen of the United States to approach a grand jury. And grand juries are supposed to be open forums for the people not for the district attorney and not for the judge. And with that, I'll yield. And so that said, must it be a U.S. citizen to be a part of the grand jury? Yes, you have to be a United States citizen to, to sit on a grand jury, but you don't have to be a United States citizen to petition the grand jury. As a matter of fact, what a lot of people don't seem to understand. Now, 
keep in mind, we've had a, a whole lot of blow up over this country about Im illegal immigration. What people don't know and really don't care that they don't know is that the state of Georgia does not make provision in its own statutes for an illegal alien. The, what they do is they define the term illegal alien by referencing to federal um, language that describes an illegal alien within the United States. Well, why do they do that? Well, because what people don't know is, is that September the 17th, I think it was, in 1785, Georgia passed its own immigration and naturalization statute. And I have yet to find any case where that establishment has been invalidated. As far as I'm concerned, any, uh, I don't care, Arab, uh, any Mexican, any uh, uh, Italian, Irishman comes across my front yard. He's not an illegal alien until he, until I can discover that he does not have a regular place of abode. He is a resident alien and he's not here illegally. Under Georgia law, he is a resident alien. He can, a resident alien in this state can go buy property. He can go buy a car. He can get a driver's license. It says it'll have to be a special license to indicate that he's not a citizen, but <clears throat> but they can still do that. They can go buy insurance, but you know they don't know that. So what can you do for them? They don't know the law. And, and that's another thing, talking about knowing Georgia law. We have a statute, 1-6-3, uh, when they take effect, the laws of this state must be known or must be, uh, I can't remember if it's known or understood by all ignorance. Of the next sentence is, ignorance of the law excuses no one. So... You know, the state of Georgia is taking care of ignorance in the, in the law. You can't come into this state and claim ignorance. That ain't going to cut it. Even though we might have a secretary of state and a governor now who do, but that's a political question. We won't get into that. <laughs> and there's this follow-up question, and I'm, if you're familiar with it. So what about a non-citizen national American? It's not the same as a sovereign citizen. Would you know the difference or would they not, be? Not entirely. I do understand there is a difference between a citizen and a national. Now, that brings up some intriguing legal uh, research. And this is one of the reasons why I've not delved into this. The day you turn 18 years of age, nobody tells you 
your mom and daddy ain't told you this is going to happen. Your school didn't teach you it was going to happen. But on that day, you walk up to a table and you pull out a chair and you take a seat at the board of directors of two of the largest corporations in the world, the state you're a resident in and the United States of America. You literally are sitting at the board of directors. Now, if you don't want to sit at that table and you don't want to participate in the vote, then you can revoke your, your uh, charter citizenship and you can simply become a national. And then you can walk around anywhere in the continental United States you want to and presumably not be hassled by anybody. But you don't go vote. You don't drive a car. Well, you, I take that back. You might be able to drive a car as a national. I don't know if uh, there's any driver's license to that. There's, there's a whole lot of uh, privileges and immunities that are strictly for citizens that others don't get to enjoy. But I have not gone into that with that great a detail. I've been too, <laughs> I've been too busy fighting corrupt judges and district attorneys and U.S. attorneys to get off into another field of law. But it, it does make for interesting uh, conjecture and study. Thank you. And um, for those who have questions, feel free to type them in and I could bring it up at this moment. Maybe I won't bring you in the video or audio so that we can we don't have to disrupt the audio status. OK, so please feel free to do that. And um, I guess I wanted to. Um, David, do you have any feel free to, you know, interrupt me it's okay <laughs> and and if okay go ahead david oh sorry you can unmute yourself i unmuted okay can you hear me yeah i, I guess we'll be, we'll be going soon but i think the for me the uh maybe the most important part of our discussion it was all important uh and uh, the judge uh talked about it but maybe he could just uh, emphasize it one more time the importance of that presentment the importance of the grand jury and their power the ability to make that presentment that they don't really even know about uh versus the indictment if you could explain that one more time to uh the audience and to the attorneys out there, etc. Appreciate it. They be glad to. <clears throat> the indictment is a document presented to the grand jury by a, a government attorney. The presentment is a document drafted with or without the help of an attorney, maybe even a government attorney but it is from the grand jury itself. That's where a grand jury, let's just say a grand jury walks in one Monday morning and they've been out in the front of the courthouse chatting about some problems that occurred over the weekend. 
and they just adamantly say to one another, well, we're going to get to the bottom of this. And they come into that grand jury room and the district attorney walks in. He's all smiles. He don't know nothing's going on. And the grand jurors look around at him and the foreman says, Mr. District Attorney, you need to take your fanny back down to your office, get you a cup of coffee and a donut, and we'll call you if we need you. We're busy. Now, that right there is the moment in time when that entire courthouse is going to need a tractor trailer load of Charmin. <laughs> Folks ain't never seen a grand jury like that. Well, not in my lifetime. But the grand jury can do their own investigation. They can tell the judge. They don't ask, a, well, yeah, as a matter of uh, deportment and quorum, they would ask the judge for a subpoena. But they don't have to. They can tell a judge, we want this guy subpoenaed. We want that woman subpoenaed. We want a subpoena deuces taken for this piece of evidence. They tell them. They don't have to ask. They do it out of politeness, but that's all. <clears throat> and when they're through talking to all the witnesses, then they sit down and they start typing up their presentment. And that's going to tell the district attorney whether or not he needs to stay and prosecute that case or does he need to get another attorney in there who is better capable than he is? And, and most, uh, most district attorneys, bless their hearts. They're really not that capable. Thank you. And Judge Nally, could you please speak more on the, I like just, and address everything also to the parents right now, because I know there's a lot of movement with parents. So please. Parents today can become the saving grace of this nation. There is no argument on that whatsoever. Take those kids and get them out from in front of that one-eyed monster. Get them off of those cell phones and teach them how to read the law. Teach them to read the law. And I mean every title. Georgia's got 53 titles. And yeah, there, that's a lot of read. That's, that's 53 volumes. And they're all about that thick up to about that thick. But read them. Understand them. If you don't understand them, go find somebody that can explain the concepts to you. But you've got to understand that these are the rules and guides for our faith and practices. There's no getting around it, just like the Bible is. And we need to read every one of those documents, including the Bible. But yeah, it's it's imperative that, that, that mothers and fathers, they cannot start teaching. They can't start reading to their kids early enough. I can tell you that. Reading to a child, without a doubt, builds a love for reading. It, it can. 
And with that, I'll yield. Wonderful. Um, if if David, if you don't have anything more, you know, then I think this would be a perfect time to temporarily close this topic. And I emphasize that because this is just the beginning. And I'm talking about reading. I remember this one little moment when I was the one sick, Judge Nally, and my son said, can I read to you? And he was maybe like eight years old, nine years old. And that was the best moment for me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Time. And yeah, so based in my opinion, again, I think the solution comes first and foremost from individual families from within our core. Okay, and I'll share again one little moment for when my son was just, you know, a small child. And when he saw me crying, you know, because, you know, every mother ever has some something that they worry about. He sure. came, he came and offered me a glass of water and he said, Mom, drink some water. You see? So yeah. that's the important thing to remember at the end of this year. We're looking too far away for solutions, but the solutions is right there, right, Judge Nelly? The solution is your next door neighbor. That's who's on the grand jury, your neighbors. 20, 16 to 23 of your neighbors are sitting on that grand jury. Go talk to them. And if anybody gets in your way, place them under arrest. Awesome, awesome. So. And so while you learn other skills on how to strengthen your empower yourselves, because, you know, we have to we have to hit it in all angles. Right. Yes, ma'am. Yes, <laughs> ma'am. And you need to bury them under paperwork. I think every lawyer understands that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love those idiomatic expressions from the past, because that's where a lot can be learned. Yes, so yes, Judge Nally, I guess anything more for, for the meantime? I uh, it's the end of you and me and David, okay? So well, just remember. I, I think I've talked about long enough. Your, your audience has got to be tired of listening. But I do thank you for the opportunity to bring this, this uh, important issue, what I consider to be important issue to your and listening audience. Do you want them to do you want to invite them to the beyondthecon.com or do you want me Oh to yeah, beyond the con, yeah. Beyond the con by all means. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, as a matter of fact, uh I doubt seriously that the Ninth Circuit is going to rule uh in our favor on on the uh on the uh, grand jury access but if they don't i understand that the the three main individuals are going to want to go on to the supreme court and i think one of the issues they're going on under is going to be the separation of powers doctrine and that will if the if the supreme the supreme court can't ignore that i mean they just simply cannot ignore it given the case law concerning judges, federal judges and grand juries. 
And so they're going to have to do something about federal judges uh, stopping people from getting to the grand jury. And, and the separation of powers doctrine is probably the linchpin of that, uh, of that appeal, if it goes there. And with that, I, I, I promise I'm shutting up. <laughs> and and I, I know beyondtheconn.com is going to have their up, upcoming live stream in January 25, I believe. But so, and they're going to have it as every month and Judge Nally will be part of this. Okay. So, and just go to the beyondtheconn.com and then uh, subscribe to them. So you'll be notified. And uh, how about um, Judge Nally? Because at one point you shared your email in the other podcast. Do you want me to share that email? So sure. Everyone... Okay. Sure. Be, so glad. That... Be glad to talk with folks. So that's Judge Paul Nally. If you want to email him, it's pnally1 at att.net. So that's how accessible he is. So you can't never say that you don't have a resource or somebody to support you. Uh, and David, how about, can you please invite them to the nationalarm.org? Oh, sorry, David, let me. Okay. Yes, uh, uh, if you'd like to support what we're doing, and it includes the grand jury, but it also includes uh, opposing the Great Reset, which is, uh, quite a task. What we want to do is build the alternative society, the National American Renaissance Movement, which will make the globalist obsolete, right, in all different areas. And if you want to help us do that, either getting involved or financial support, it's nationalarm.org, nationalarm.org. You can read about us. You can read our board of directors, which is, is, is quite an impressive board of directors. And we have a video channel there. And uh, we're trying to uh, stay the right and noble course. And we're trying to uh, uh, assist in uh, saving our society, our, our, our country, our constitution, our Bill of Rights. And I uh, appreciate being here. Uh, it was quite a pleasure to, to meet the judge uh, and uh, hear his insights. Uh, so, uh, uh, nationalarm.org, you want to support us financially or get involved. Thank you. And thank you to all those who be, you shared, um, been with us. So, Charlene, I don't know all of you, but I'm I'm happy to mention your name, names, Ted Metz, We The People. And if I miss your name, but you know, we feel you. We feel you and you feel us. And for and we can only really be strong in doing our work if we're physically healthy. So I posted also I will include wellness resources under my clinical supervision as a holistic nurse, and I do um, I am certified in uh, every other things in in terms of alternative medicine, and that's why from the get go from the very beginning i never bought this the narrative and my son is now in the 30s and he's never been vaccinated from the very beginning okay so thank you very much and um he says please review family okay but anyway thanks and we'll do it again in the future be blessed happy new year and more power to all of us thank you Happy and prosperous New Year.
share 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 like 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 subscribe and donate in this guest and these organizations okay bye bye bye, -bye.